Our sermon series for the summer is What Does the Bible Say About? And what we're doing is we're putting these cards in your bulletin that give you an opportunity to submit questions to us uh, that gives us the subjects for the sermon. The first four sermons in this series we chose as a staff to kind of get the pump primed, but now it's over to you. And we uh, could use more. We'd always like more from you. So, uh, in fact, uh, when we get repeated requests, that's one of the indicators we use to choose sermons. The topic we're doing today, we've got multiple requests. So, please continue to fill these out and drop them in the buckets in the back or just leave them on your seat and we will collect them. And if we don't get a chance to talk about them in a sermon, we will talk about them in our live broadcast that happens on Facebook and YouTube at 3 p.m. on Thursdays. You can watch it live and actually ask us questions while we're talking, or you can watch it later. Today's topic is the first one that's been chosen by you, uh, which one of the things I'm excited about in this series is it gives us a chance to talk about things that may not have come up um, otherwise. And one of the things that was asked to, for us to discuss multiple times was, what does the Bible say about women in leadership? And... Uh, I'm excited for this conversation for two reasons. One is because I think it's an important topic for us to talk about, but also because I think the way we answer this question, th- this issue is a really good um, uh, example for us to talk about how we determine what the Bible says about a particular subject, because there are different ways of approaching the Bible and different ways of getting answers from the Bible, and depending on how you approach it, you'll get something different. And so we're going to actually talk about two different ways to approach the Bible and see what it says. But I do think this is a very important topic for us to talk about. It's, a, it's an, an issue that is, is very um, relevant to tensions that are going on and, and, and experiences that people are having. And, um, and yeah, I think it's important for us to talk about um, as a church. The first thing I want to start off with is, is talking about how we approach the Bible, because the common way that we approach the Bible when we have questions like this is we approach it like an encyclopedia, and we say, all right, let me check my concordance, let me check the, the website that will list, you know, there's a website where you can ask what does the Bible say about this, and it just lists the verses, and you can just consult, here's my text that will tell me the answers to this question, and like an encyclopedia, and that's, that's how we typically answer the question, and when you approach the Bible that way for to get your answer, you will typically... Uh, conclude that the, uh, when read as an encyclopedia, the Bible seems to r- clearly rule out female leadership. It seems to be pretty clear. There's a couple of really cut and dry statements that simplify the matter for us. And usually when you approach the Bible as, a, um, as an encyclopedia, you end up in Paul. Because Paul, his letters are the closest thing to an encyclopedia that you get in the Bible because he's talking directly about subjects to, to churches. You don't end up in Song of Solomon or Job or those kind of books quite so much. And here's the, the, two, the two places that mainly are where we go when we use the Bible as an encyclopedia for this. First Corinthians says, As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silence in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Seems pretty cut and dry. Women shouldn't speak in church, and we are in trouble. I actually did not plan for this sermon to happen on a day that Rachel did a community meditation, that, <laughs> that she's filling in for someone else. <laughs> but, um, 
it seems to be pretty cut and dry. It's shameful for a woman to speak in the church. Notice also, no qualifiers. It's just plain shameful for a woman to speak in church. That seems to be what the Bible says. And if that doesn't convince you, then you can look in First Timothy where Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. And churches in attempts to follow this clear rule that is given have come up with all different gymnastics. Because the idea of women not actually participating in leadership is... You can't, a church wouldn't have enough people to do that. It just wouldn't work. So we need women involved. So they tried to carve out biblical, biblically allowed job descriptions for women. So we tend to give them the job of a pastor but not call them a pastor. We also will say, okay, you can teach women and you can teach children up to this age, but then you're teaching men and you can't do that. And you can go up front and you can give a testimony, but you can't give a sermon because the testimony is not teaching. And we, we have, because we're trying to follow this this clear rule that we're given. The other piece of evidence, if you look or lack thereof, as you look at the Bible's encyclopedias, there doesn't seem to be statements to the contrary. There doesn't seem to be evidence of women in leadership. There doesn't seem to be statements supporting women in leadership. So it seems cut and dry, simple. It's it. It's we just women should be leaders. And this is one of those subjects that is becoming very important for us to be clear on because uh, our generations are being raised now uh, with the expectation that women have the same opportunities as men. Right? The generation has been raised that has been, not even that we should get there, but it's just been told to expect women have the same opportunities as men. Right? And, and that's what we bring to the table. That's the expectations that are brought to the table. And as we have people with those expectations, um, as gender equality becomes the expectation in our culture, this position that, that the church often takes has become an obstacle to many. They will come into the church and say, wait, you don't allow women in leadership? And, and it feels, it's as disorienting as if, is, as if they came in and we were still lighting the building by candles. Right? Just like, wait, people still... And it's disorienting, and it's an obstacle. And it's also an obstacle to people within the church as they're, they're raised, as women are raised in the church to say, hey, you can be anything you want to be. You can be an astronaut. You can be uh, the president. You can be this, you can be that, but you can't be a pastor. And it's, it's disorienting, and it, and it creates an obstacle. Now, let me be very clear. If there is an obstacle in God's Word that is put there by Him, if there is something that is countercultural in Scripture by God's design, then we should stand on that. The fact that something has become countercultural in Scripture does not mean we go away from it, we back away from it. We are called to be in step with God, and that means being out of step with culture in many different ways. And if this is one of those ways, then we ought to stick to Scripture and, and, and never move. But the reason why it's important for us to acknowledge the obstacle is because when we come to a subject where we see an obstacle, we need to make really certain that that obstacle does come from God. If we're going to stand on this and say we will not move, we've got to be certain that that's actually what God said and not just our assumption. And it's not coming from us. And so this makes it especially important that we ask, is this really what the Bible says? It is part of the DNA of, our, of the movement our church is a part of to say that we ought not to put obstacles between people and God. If there are obstacles, if there are things that, that if there are barriers, they've got to be placed there by God. God wants us to change in certain ways. That's got to come from God. We're not going to add any obstacles. So what we're going to do today is we're going to try and answer this question, Does, is this really what the Bible says? And the, we're going to be talking about how we read the Bible. So the first thing we're going to do, and we're going to spend a good chunk of time on this, is 
looking closer at this encyclopedia answer to the question and see, does this really hold up? Can we really say clearly, this is God communicating a clear position to us? And if it's not, then we need to find another way to read the Bible. We need to figure out how do we read the Bible and learn and follow what God says. The first thing that we, as, as you actually look closer at these clear passages, what we find is the encyclopedia passages are not actually as clear as they seem to be. Now, one of the things that will often happen when we have this discussion about women in leadership about these passages is we'll talk about context. We'll say, well, there were cultural things going on that Paul was responding to, and culture has changed. And I think it is a very important conversation to have, to, to talk about culture. But I'm, I'm not even ready for that conversation yet. I want to talk about the fact that it's not even clear what it meant to the original culture, as clear as we think it is. And in fact, it could mean two opposing things. We're going to start by looking at the passage in 1 Corinthians. And when you're in 1 Corinthians, there's an important thing to recognize about that letter. It is not the beginning of the conversation between Paul and Corinth. Paul wrote them a letter that we don't have. They wrote him a letter back that we don't have. And Paul responded with the letter of 1 Corinthians. And the reason this is relevant is because you will come across passages in 1 Corinthians that have quotation marks. Because Paul is quoting from the letter they sent him. You see this most obviously in 1 Corinthians 7. Paul says, Now concerning the matter about what you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Now, if you're listening to this on the podcast, you really should watch on YouTube because there's some visual stuff that's going to be happening here with the text. Um, the interesting thing to notice here is ancient Greek has no punctuation. So those quotation marks have been added by the interpreters, by the translators. Why have they been added there? Because they can tell by the text that Paul is quoting from a letter. This is something that people did back then in correspondence. They would quote from your letter and then respond to it because people didn't do triplicate back then. So you quote the passage you're responding to, right? And the way they can tell what to quote is there's a statement. It wouldn't let me put two colors of text on the slide or, or a third color. So the first part is underlined. That's a statement. And you'll notice the yellow part contradicts that statement. And in between, there is a hinge word that I've offset with asterisk. So in the first part, he says it's good, uh, not, it's good not to have sex. And then in the second, then he says, but, hinge word implies contradiction, but because it's really tempting, you should get married so that you won't sin. You notice that those are contradicting statements, and there's a hinge word in between. It's a reply. Okay? So that's how they know here's where the quotation marks go, because this part is being quoted from the original letter. You know, this happens a lot of different points in 1 Corinthians when you watch for it. Here's another example, just to show you that there's some, some discretion involved in where, how the translators do this. Paul writes, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Now here's another place. Paul randomly starts talking about food, even though the conversation is about sexual immorality. Well, that's because in the letter from the Corinthians, they use this as an example of their argument to say, hey, the body is made for appetite. My body wants food, so I should put food in it. My body wants sex, so I should just follow the appetite. And, and so he responds to that argument saying, yeah, but they're both going to get destroyed. And that's not ultimately the point. Everything belongs to God. Or is that how he responds? Because this is a place where there's some discretion. The ESV translates it this way, but if you go to the NIV, first of all, NIV makes it clearer by adding the words you say to illustrate that it's quotation. But then notice that they put God will destroy them both 
as part of a quotation from the Corinthians. So there's a discretion that the translators have to use to figure out where are the quotations, right? So it's important for us to recognize this because this is a dynamic that goes throughout 1 Corinthians. And remember the formula, statement, hinge word, contradiction. That's the formula for one of these quotes. Now let's take a look at the passage about women in leadership. Okay? And we're going we're gonna to rewind a little bit. We're going to read a couple verses into it so we can see what the context is. Paul writes, You can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirit of, spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. He says, he's been talking about how they all come in with a prophecy and they talk over each other. And he says, hey, you can all talk. If God's given you a word to speak, you should all get this chance to speak. But do it one at a time, because God is the God of chaos. Next verse. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silence in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should always be in submission, as the law also says. There is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy, and do not forbid speaking in tongues. But all things should be done decently and in order. If that was hard to follow, you're not alone. He starts out by saying, hey, everybody should get a chance to talk. Then he says, women shouldn't talk, it's shameful. Then he finishes by saying, hey, make sure you don't forbid people talking and speaking in tongues. So it's, let everybody talk, don't let women talk, let everybody talk. And it's so out of joint that there are actually people making, like scribes making copies of this in the early centuries of the church who assumed that the last guy to make a copy made a mistake here and like moved, put those verses about women in the wrong place. Because it's not what Paul's talking about at the time. He's talking about speaking in tongues. And it seems really out of place. It's just like it's this weird, yeah, he got distracted for a couple of verses and then came back to it. Unless those words aren't from Paul. Bear with me here, and let's try reading it this way. I'm going to switch to the RSV, because the RSV, better transla- the Revised Standard Version, better translates one word. You can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. So he's talking about everybody should get a chance to speak. And then, let's read it this way. Let's imagine that the next part is in quotations. Then the Corinthians, he's responding to the Corinthians, as in all the churches of the, the saints, or the Corinthians said this, and this contradicted what Paul had just been saying. As in all the churches, women should be, uh, keep silence in the church, for they're not permitted to speak uh, and, should not be, and should be subordinate, even as the law says. If there is anything they desire to know, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Okay, so if that's a quotation, what if that's what the Corinthians were saying? It contradicts what Paul just said, and... There's a couple other things. Number one, um, the law, it says, ju- as even the law says, the law doesn't say that. The statement that they just refer to is not made in the law of Moses. It doesn't actually say that. It does say that in Roman law. In fact, what they're arguing here sounds a lot like an argument that was made by a Roman senator to uh, take, make it so women couldn't own property. But it's not in Roman law. Or it's not in the law of Moses. Here's the other thing. If this is a quotation, what we should expect to find is a contradiction hinge word and then a statement that contradicts this sentiment. What do we find? What? Or as he translates that word, what? Because it is a strong contradiction word as if to say what follows contradicts what came before. Did the word of God originate with you? Or are you the only ones that is reached? 
For if anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that what I am writing to you is a command of the Lord. What's the command of the Lord? Well, it could be that women should speak, unless that's a quotation, in which case the command is everyone should get a chance to speak. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So, my brethren, earnestly desire to prophesy. And what's the conclusion? Do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. The point seems to be not forbidding speaking. To tell them not to forbid speaking. And so it actually makes perfect sense for this part where he says it's shameful for women to speak in the church, which we can tell they didn't really follow back then any more than we follow now that that's actually what the Corinthians were saying and Paul's correcting it. Now, this is what I believe this text says. I wouldn't preach it if I didn't believe it. And I may or may not have convinced you that this is what this text says. But what I hopefully have convinced you of is that this text is not as clear-cut as we think it is. That you can't just say, well, the Bible says it, I believe it. Because it's not actually all that clear. This is a weird, weirdly structured passage. And we can't just say, well, that's just what the Bible says. There's interpretation that goes in there and discretion that's involved. But you say, well, we still have that really clear statement in 1 Timothy where he says, um, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. That's clear cut, right? And people will often argue, well, Paul's only talking to Timothy's church. It's a problem with the, the church in Ephesus that he's addressing. And I, I will tell you, that's not true. That doesn't work. Because the justification Paul gives for making this statement is cosmic. He talks about Adam and Eve. He says, for Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. So the logic here seems to be, the way we normally read it, is women should not lead in the church because Eve messed it up for all of them. Because of what Eve did. Now, we, we can take that a couple of different routes. Some people will say Eve sinned and all women are being punished for Eve's sin. Like that she spoiled it for all women. Other people will say, no, Eve just revealed to us the inherent weakness in women and the need for men to be in charge because of women's weakness. But it seems it's an argument about humanity and the nature of humanity. The thing is, it's in that first verse, it all hinges on how you translate that first verse, and that first verse is really hard to translate. There are words used in that verse that are not used anywhere else in the Bible. And the way you figure out what a word in the Bible means is usually by looking at all the different places it's used. And the preeminent New Testament scholar in the world right now, N.T. Wright, actually translates that first verse this way. Women must study, must study undisturbed in full submission to God. I'm not saying that women should teach men or try to dictate to them. Rather, they should be left undisturbed. The emphasis in the verse actually seems to be on letting women study. It's not a matter of don't let them teach or let them teach. It's a matter of don't let them study or let them study. And what he's saying is give them a chance to study. Let them study. Leave them alone so they can study. And then, according to this translation, what he's actually saying is, he's not saying don't let them lead. He's saying, I'm not going to make you put, make them, I'm not gonna make you put them in leadership, but I am going to make you let them study, which is a very different claim. And it makes us read the statements about Eve differently. Because if the question is about whether women can study, then, then the debate that they would have been having back then is, is that a waste of an education? Because in that culture, women didn't get to do much. What's the point in teaching women if women don't get many, you know, many opportunities? What, isn't that a waste of time to teach women? Uh, because what they do doesn't matter. 
And if there's one thing that the story of Eve actually teaches us about women, it's that what women do matters. If women didn't matter, Eve's sin wouldn't have mattered. But what the story of Eve actually proves to us is that what women do matters. So you can't just ignore them and leave them behind because that's a whole half of the church that could either be instrumental in building the church up or instrumental in letting it fall. So the emphasis seems to be on saying, hey, remember, what women do matters. What Eve did mattered. What Mary did when she gave birth to the Savior mattered. So women knowing the gospel and getting a chance to learn matters. That seems to be what he's saying. Now again, I wouldn't say this if I didn't believe this is what the passage was saying. But even if I haven't convinced you that that's what the passage is saying, we have to conclude that the passage is not a clear-cut statement to say women shouldn't be in leadership, because that is not actually clear. Now, at this point, you may say, yeah, those passages may be a little, a little unclear, but there's no evidence in the Bible that's positive towards women being in leadership. So that, that absence of evidence makes a point right there, right? The thing is that it really depends on what Bible you're reading. The truth is that there are passages about women leaders in the Bible. It's just that they are suppressed by some translations. I have to confess something that I, uh, when I taught my How to Read the Bible class, I recommended the English Standard Version for people to use as a study Bible and I, because it's a word-for-word translation, and I have to dial that back because what I've learned in using the ESV and studying the ESV and looking at how it's put together, the ESV has a political agenda. And that political agenda is to actively suppress any evidence of women in the Bible having leadership roles or any possibility for that. It was an intention in the way they designed it, and they take every opportunity to do that. Other translations will honestly come to interpretations that look that way, but the ESV systematically does it and in some indefensible ways, in my opinion. I'll give you some examples. Romans 16.1, Paul says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church in Sincrea. You know what the Greek word for servant is? Deacon. You know how they translate this word in other passages? Deacon. You know why they translated as servant here? Because she's a woman. There is no grammatical reason to translate this as servant when it is clearly a phrase of an office in the church. Servant of that church. It's to be deacon. NIV translates it, I commend you our sister Phoebe, a deacon in the church of Sincrea. Phoebe was a deacon. You just don't see it in some translations. There's another one that we talked about before in, uh, later in the same list of people that Paul's talking about. He says, Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. In the ESV it says, They were well known to the apostles and they were in Christ before me. So the apostles heard about them and think they're pretty great. That's not what the Greek says. That is flat out not what the Greek says. What the Greek actually says is, They are outstanding among the apostles and they were in Christ before I was. They are members of the group the apostles, and they're really good in that group. Andronicus and Junia are apostles. Junia is a woman. Now, I'm not saying they're part of the 12 apostles. That was a closed group. But they were apostles the same way Paul was an apostle, that they were witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. This is what the Bible says. Junia was, and we can tell that this is really what the Greek means, because in earlier generations, when they first started to try and whitewash some of this stuff out, but people still actually spoke the Greek, they, they wouldn't have thought that it meant what the ESV translates it. So they added an S to Junia's name to make a male name, Junius. Now, we can't find any other evidence of anybody being called Junius. 
It's not a real name, but they just made a male version of her name to try and obscure that. And you'll even find some old English translations that do that. But Junia was, a, was a, an apostle. One more piece of evidence. Um, deacons, this is a passage in First Timothy about deacons. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. So there's a list of qualifications for deacons, and in the ESV, that last verse is about the qualifications for deacons' wives. Like, the deacons have to be able to do all this, and their wives also have to be this good. Now, here's the thing about the word wife in Greek. It's actually woman. And the difference between wife and woman is a possessive pronoun. Casey, this is in Greek, it sounds bad in English, but in Greek, Casey is a woman. She's also my woman. That's how I would say she's my wife. She is my woman. The difference is a possessive pronoun. And in ESV, they translate it as their wives. Problem is, you know it's not in the original Greek? A possessive, a possessive pronoun. It says, the women. Like the NIV says, in the same way, the women are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but tempered and trustworthy in everything. And we have sermons from the 300s where pastors are talking about the fact that this is talking about women deacons. We have archaeological evidence of 107 named women who served as deacons in the early church. Women were deacons. It's just some of our translations don't acknowledge it. But it's in there. So what we actually find when we look at these passages is that the Bible does not actually have a clear command on women in leadership in the church. It doesn't exclude it, and it definitely allows for it in certain areas. Now, what you may say is, yeah, but there's other offices that it doesn't mention. That there are, there's you know, at least, you know, elders. That position is men only, because the Bible is pretty clear about that. Well, let's see if that really is a clear command. I'm not trying to make an argument about who we're going to have as elders here, but I do want to say, look at what the Bible does and doesn't say. Here's the passage in 1 Timothy. This, this saying is trustworthy. If anyone is, oh, sorry, watch for pronouns, because that's the argument here. They're all male pronouns. This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires, desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, and with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household well, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Now, I didn't ask you to count pronouns there, but let me ask you this. Any guesses as to how many male pronouns there are in the original Greek? Would you believe there are zero male pronouns in the original Greek of this passage? Not a single one. Now, Greek is one of those weird languages where nouns have genders, so like pencils are... You remember when you learned Spanish, like pencil is male and cloud is female or something like that, right? There is some, like, some of that in the language, but there is no actual male pronoun used. Paul wrote this in a way that was gender neutral. The only gendered statement in there is husband of one wife, which in Greek is one woman man which is, basically means monogamous, like faithful to your spouse. So if we're going to use this passage to say to exclude women, it really doesn't. So we have to make our decision on different grounds. But the Bible just doesn't give us that rule. This is really frustrating because if you're like me, you really want the rules, right? I just want God to, especially in church leadership, just God, give me the rules and I'll stay in them. Just tell me where the line is and I'll stick to it. Just get, That's what we want. 
And in fact, we try so hard to make rules that often we force and contort the Bible into rules to make us feel better. And the problem is that when we do that, we often end up with rules that contradict the story of the Bible. Rules that God himself doesn't follow. So in this last section of the sermon, I want to look at a different way of reading the Bible. Let's read the Bible focusing on the story. What is the story of God's relationship with women in the Bible? And just, just looking at leadership positions, because when we talk about the relationship between God and women, it's this whole bigger conversation. But women as leaders in the Bible, what do we find in the Old Testament? God called women to be prophets and leaders in Israel. God called many women to be prophets and leaders in Israel. It's actually surprising in the context how many women this happened with. The first person to be named, identified in, in the narration of the Old Testament as a prophet is Miriam, the sister of Moses. Deborah is not only a prophet, but the leader of Israel. The leader. Huldah is a prophet that the king consults in the Old Testament. Anna is one of the prophets who sees Jesus at the temple as a baby. If we're talking about what constitutes a prophet, someone who receives revelations from God, we should also include Rachel, Hannah, Samson's mother, Abigail, Elizabeth, Mary, and other women. Um, we could also talk about Esther, you know, an entire book dedicated to a woman taking initiative and in leading God's people and protecting them. One last thing, and this is actually in the New Testament, but pointing towards the Old Testament. In Matthew chapter 1, there is God, Jesus' family tree, the family line of David, right? And there are four women who are identified in this passage. They are Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. These women have a few things in common. One, they're all Gentiles who married into the family of God, which is interesting. Two, for, they all have their own reason why they're considered damaged goods in their culture, and yet God used them in the family of, of David. But third, every one of them is a woman who took charge in the story to protect the family line of David. Without these women taking charge of the story, the family line of David doesn't survive. You trace that each one of them does something where they have to take charge, usually because the men are failing to do so. And they have to make sure that the ball moves forward. And Matthew seems to be commending them for that assertiveness and that leadership role. And that got me thinking about the relation, the story of Jesus encountering women. Because when you think about it, for how much of Jesus' life we actually have, there's a surprising number of times that Jesus is confronted with assertive women. When you think about it, Jesus encounters a lot of assertive women for a really patriarchal time, right? And the, the, uh, we don't actually have that many stories about Jesus' entire life. He lived for 33 years, and you can read his biographies in a, a couple of days, you know? There's not that much information. And yet, he meets a lot of assertive women. And there is not one place where he tells them to go home and ask their husband. There's not one place where Jesus tells a woman to know her place. There's not one place where Jesus uh, seems to react negatively to a woman's assertiveness. Instead, what we find is Jesus always valued and vindicated women in his ministry. I'm going to give you a few examples of things that Jesus has said to women when he should have told them to go home to the kitchen by cultural standards, okay? And this is, um, we're going to start with, you heard several of these stories you would have heard in our Eyewitnesses series. The first one is when Jesus is at a fancy dinner with important men, and a woman comes in and mixes company, which is probably not appropriate at that time. But she's not just any woman, she's a sinful woman, which means she really shouldn't be around the high-class men. And then she approaches Jesus, which is very wrong when he's single and they're not related. And not only does she approach him and potentially get her sin cooties on him, but then she starts to actually 
touched, wash his feet in a very intimate way, which would have been deeply shameful in that culture. This woman has crossed every taboo for a woman, especially a sinful woman in that culture. And how does Jesus respond? He says, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. That's what Jesus says to her in this moment when she is, she is broken out of the barriers, the, the rules for how a woman's supposed to behave. Another time, there was a woman who had a bleeding issue which made her ritually unclean in a uniquely female way. And she's not even supposed to be near people without telling them first that she's unclean. But she pushes her way through a crowd to get to Jesus, and without speaking to him, without warning him, without asking him, she just reaches out and touches him. And breaks so many rules as she's doing it. Breaks the law of Moses, breaks religious taboos, breaks gender taboos, and Jesus turns around and with this chance to put her in her place, and what he says is, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Jesus is uh, teaching in the home of a pair of sisters, and one of them, Mary, comes and sits in the male space where men sit and listen to their rabbi, and she listens at his feet like a man. And her sister, who is in the women's space in the kitchen, is upset by this and comes out and tells Jesus to send her sister, Mary, back into the kitchen where she belongs, where she's needed, and to stop with all this foolishness in the men's section. And what does Jesus say? Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken from her. Next, there was a Gentile woman who, she's not even part of Israel, and she finds Jesus, and she starts yelling, begging him to save her daughter. And Jesus ignores her. And then the disciples say, Jesus, what do we do? She's getting annoying, like she won't give up. And Jesus says, hey, I'm, I'm only here for the people of Israel. And she has the, the boldness to argue with him. She argues with Jesus, which usually does not go well, right? Usually you argue with Jesus, and he ends up making it very clear how wrong you are. But she argues with Jesus and, and argues that he should be able to help her. And his response to her confrontation is to say, Woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And finally, Jesus rises from the dead. Did you hear that one? And he has a chance to reveal this to the world, first of all, through his disciples. And so, you could have appeared directly to the twelve, There's no, or the eleven. There's no reason why he couldn't have done that, but instead, what does he do? He seeks out a group of women who sought him out, who are considered so, as a result of their gender, they're so unreliable that they're not even allowed to testify in court. And he finds these women, and he says to them, do not be afraid, go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. He didn't need to involve these women in that process, and he did. He chose them for that task. That is Jesus valuing and vindicating women, and assertive women at that. Never once did he tell them to know their place. He valued them and he vindicated them. And that sets us up to, as we see the trajectory of the church in the New Testament, to recognize that the New Testament church was full of prominent women. It was full of... I only... Actually, so I was at a family reunion for most of this week, so I had two days to do this sermon. So I didn't do an exhaustive list for this part. Uh, this is just what I found in a quick search of women that worked with Paul. Okay? So here's the list of women... Uh, sorry, prominent women. Here's the list of women that worked with Paul. Okay? Philip had four daughters. They were all prophets. Phoebe was a deaconess. We know about her. Priscilla was a very prominent church planter. Mary, he identifies as a co-worker with him. Junia was a prominent apostle. 
Tryphena and Tryphosa were fellow workers, Paul calls them. Most of these you're going to find in Romans 16. Just read through Romans 16. Um, Persis is a beloved worker. Chloe is a church leader mentioned in 1 Corinthians 1. Eudia and Syntyche were fellow strugglers mentioned in Philippians 2. They were having an argument, but Paul talks to them as leaders in the church. Nympha was a house church leader, and Aphia was a house church leader as well, mentioned in Colossians and Philemon. These were prominent women involved in the church. And what we find is that trend continues, that in the early church, after the New Testament period, that actually one of the reasons why, the, one of the ways they were criticized by pagans was by how many women were in the church. Because that seemed to, you know, why would, if women believe it, it can't be that good, was the idea in the culture at the time. And so they make fun of all the women and slaves in Christianity. So what we find is a story that de- involves women on a deep level um, and in, in many different ways. And what we have to do is, as we try and get rules out of Scripture, we have to make sure that they fit the story. Because the problem is, when we contort the story, when we contort the rules, and we, we end up often val- invalidating the story. John Piper is one of the guys leading the charge and saying that women should not be in, in church leadership. And he's said himself, he's admitted, I don't know what to make of Deborah. Like, Deborah doesn't fit. I don't know what's going on there. And to me, that's a red flag. If you can't make sense of what God did according to this rule that you think is there that's not actually all that certain, maybe that means we're interpreting the rule wrong. Ultimately, what I want, this is really about how we read the Bible. And I'm going to say something to you as, as I wrap this up. This say something to you that may challenge you. It certainly challenged me as I learned it. But once you think about it, it's as obvious as the nose on your face. Okay? The, the focus of the Bible is not on a set of rules to follow, but on a story to live out. Here's the thing. We believe that God is good at the things He does, right? Can we all agree on that? It's a pretty basic thing. Like, if God were not good at something, He's not God, right? Like, he, God is just, He's good at the things He does. If the point of writing the Bible, inspiring the Bible, was to give us a list of rules, do you think it would be this hard to figure out what those rules actually are? Do you think we would fight, we would be able to fight so much about what the basic rules are if that's the kind of book he was writing? That's just not what the Bible is. If, 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 if that was God's job, his goal, then he did a bad job. Because the Bible is not a rule book, it's a story. It starts with in the beginning and it ends with they lived happily ever after. Like, it's a story, right? It's a story, it's our story. And what we're being invited to is not into a list of rules to follow. The Israelites were invited into that. And you know what they were given? A list of rules. We're invited into a story because we're given a story. And that does mean learning to live within that story and learning to live in ways that are consistent with that story. So the Bible definitely has a ton to tell us about the right way to live and about what's right and what's wrong. And and those are very important things for us to follow. But it's as part of living in the story. And so that's what, how we need to approach the Bible is living in that story. And as we're doing that and we're looking at this particular subject, what we have to acknowledge is that the story of the Bible includes many gifted women called to serve and lead in many ways. They're in the story by God's design. There are a lot of women called to serve and to lead in a lot of different ways by God's design. And that's part of the story. And so ultimately, the challenge for us as individuals and as a church is what we are doing is we are wanting to live into that story, to participate in this chapter of that story. The Bible gives us the first chapters of the story and the last chapter of the story, and we're living in our own chapter and trying to make the connection, right? 
pass the baton. Our job as a church is to discern how to faithfully carry on that story in our own chapter. I'm not using this sermon as an opportunity to declare to you church our congregation's positions on anything. That's not, that wouldn't be an appropriate way to use a sermon, and that's not really just thing, something that I'm empowered to just do. But uh, what I am saying is that th- this is what the Bible actually says. This is the story that we're invited into, and our task is to live that story out faithfully. So however we live that story out, it has to have room for Deborah and Junia and Mary and Mary and Mary and Mary, and, and all these other women that are part of that story. We have to live it out in a way that recognizes that and validates that. As we close, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to uh, invite you to consider a couple of next steps that you can take. And the first one is to recognize the Bible is not just God's story, it's not just the church's story, but it's your story that you're being invited into. It is a story that gives your life meaning, that gives your life value, that tells you where you come from and where you're going. Today is the best day for you to decide to be a part of that story. So the first next step you can take is to give your life to Jesus. If that's something you want to do, you can come forward during this last song. You can talk to one of the ministers. You can contact us online or contact the church office. Get in touch with us. We would love to walk you through that. If you want to know more about being a Christian with being part of this church family, what you can do is you can take your Connect card and you can check the box that says sign up for a Connect class. Once a month we offer classes that, uh, it's a one-day class that just tells you who we are, what we do, and how you can be a part of it. And our next one is on August 11th. So check that box and we'll, we'll get in touch with you and set that up. You could also join a small group, which is a, a, group, a set of relationships that you go through life with and you, you live out that story with because you're not called to do it alone. So if you want to be a part of a small group, you can check that box as well. And finally, if you want to join a service team and live out the mission that we're called to, this is a story about a mission, work that's being done. You can do that through serving in one of our service teams as well. So I encourage you to continue one, consider one of those decisions as we stand and sing our final song. Please join us.